The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borey, Part 4, The 1900s, Phenomenological Existentialism. Phenomenology is a research technique that involves the careful description of aspects of human life as they are lived. Existentialism, deriving its insights from phenomenology, is the philosophical attitude that views human life from the inside, rather than pretending to understand it from an outside, objective point of view. Phenomenological existentialism, as a philosophy or psychology, is not a tightly defined system by any means, and yet its adherents are relatively easily identified by their emphasis on the importance of individuals and their freedom to participate in their own creation. It is a psychology that emphasizes our creative processes far more than our adherence to laws, be they human, natural, or divine. Brentano Franz Brentano was born January 16, 1838, in Marienburg, Germany. He became a priest in 1864 and began teaching two years later at the University of Würzburg. Religious doubts led him to leave the priesthood and resign from his teaching position in 1873. The following year, Bertano wrote Psychology from an Empirical Standpoint. It was in this book that Bertano introduced the concept that is most associated with him, intentionality, or eminent objectivity. This is the idea that what makes mind different from other things is that mental acts are always directed at something beyond themselves. Seeing implies something being seen. Willing implies something being willed. Imagining implies something being imagined. Judging points at something being judged. Intentionality links the subject and the object in a very powerful way. Bertano was given a position as a professor at the University of Vienna soon after. In 1880, he tried to marry, but his marriage was forbidden by the Austrian government, who still considered him a priest. He left his professorship and moved to Leipzig to get married. The next year, he was permitted to come back to the University of Vienna as a lecturer. He was quite popular with students, and among his students were Karl Stumpf and Edmund Husserl, the founders of phenomenology, and a young man named Sigmund Freud. Bertano retired in 1895, but continued to write until his death, March 17, 1917, in Zurich. Stumpf. Karl Stumpf was born April 21, 1884, in Weissenheide in Bavaria. He was strongly influenced 
by Franz Bertano. As a lecturer at the University of Göttingen, he published The Psychological Origins of Space Perception in 1870. In 1873, Carl Stumpf became a professor at the University of Würzburg. Stumpf's masterwork, Tone Psychology, was completed during a series of professorships at Prague, Halle, and Munich. Karl Stumpf became a professor and the director of the Institute of Experimental Psychology at the Friedrich Wilhelm University in Berlin in 1894. There, he continued his work on the psychology of music. He started a journal on the subject of the psychology of music, and he began an archive of primitive music. Stumpf retired in 1921 continuing his work until his death, December 15, 1936, in Berlin. Along with Husserl, he is considered a co-founder of phenomenology and, in particular, an inspiration to the Gestalt psychologists. Husserl Edmund Husserl was born April 8, 1859, in Moravia. He studied philosophy, math, and physics at Leipzig, Berlin, and Vienna, and received his doctorate from the University of Vienna in 1882 in mathematics. The next year, Husserl moved to Vienna to study under Franz Bretano. Husserl, born into a Jewish family, converted to Lutheranism in 1886 and married a young woman in 1887 who was also a Jewish convert. Together, they had three children. In these same years, Husserl went to study with Karl Stumpf at the University of Halle and became a lecturer there. The two became good friends and often exchanged ideas. While at Halle, Husserl agonized over the connection between mathematics and the nature of the mind. He recognized that his original ideas, which involved mathematics as coming out of psychology, were misguided. So, he began the development of his brand of phenomenology as a way of investigating the nature of experience itself. This led to the publication of the book Logical Investigations in 1900. Edmund Husserl was invited to a professorship at the University of Göttingen in 1901, where students began to form a circle around him and his work. In 1916, he went to the University of Freiburg. Here, he wrote First Philosophy, which outlines his belief that phenomenology offered a means toward moral development and a better world. He received many honors and gave guest lectures at the University of London, the University of Amsterdam, and the Sorbonne, making his ideas available to a new and wider audience. Husserl retired in 1928. Martin Heidegger, with Husserl's strong approval, was appointed as his successor. As Heidegger's work developed into the basis of existentialism, Husserl distanced himself from the new movement. When the Nazis took over in 1933, Husserl, born a Jew, was banned from the university. He nevertheless continued to provide support to friends in the resistance. He spoke on the European crisis in Vienna in 1935, 
despite being under a rule of silence. He also spoke at the University of Prague that year, where his unpublished manuscripts were being collected and catalogued. Husserl's last work, The Crisis of European Sciences and Transcendental Phenomenology, in 1936, introduced the concept of Lebensfeld. The next year, Husserl became ill, and on April 27, 1938, he died. Phenomenology Phenomenology is an effort at improving our understanding of ourselves and our world by means of careful description of experience. On the surface, this seems like little more than naturalistic observation and introspection. Examined a little more closely, however, you can see that the basic assumptions are quite different from those of mainstream, experimentally-oriented human sciences. In doing phenomenology, we try to describe phenomena without reducing those phenomena to supposedly objective non-phenomena. Instead of appealing to objectivity for validation, we appeal instead to intersubjective agreement. Phenomenology begins with phenomena, or appearances, that which we experience, that which is given, and it stays with those phenomena. It doesn't prejudge an experience as to its qualifications to be an experience. Instead, by taking up a phenomenological attitude, we ask the experience to tell us what it is. The most basic kind of phenomenology is the description of a particular phenomenon such as a momentary happening, a thing, or even a person something full of its own uniqueness. Herbert Spiegelberg, in 1965, outlined three steps. The first is intuiting. In this step, we experience or we recall a phenomenon. We hold it in our awareness. We live in it. We are within the experience. We will be involved in it, dwell in it, or dwell upon it. Step two is analyzing. We examine the phenomenon, looking for the pieces or the parts in the spatial sense, the episodes or the sequences in the temporal sense, the qualities and dimensions of the phenomenon, settings, environments, surroundings, the prerequisites and the consequences in time, the perspective or approach that one can take in understanding it the cores, the foci, the fringes, or the horizons, the appearing and the disappearing of the phenomenon, and the clarity of the phenomenon. We investigate these many aspects, both in their outward forms, objects, actions, others, and in their inward forms, thoughts, images, and feelings. The third step is describing Write down your description. Write it down as if the reader had never had such an experience. Guide them through your intuiting and analyzing. What makes these three simple steps so difficult is the attitude that you must maintain as you perform them. First, you must have a certain respect for the phenomenon. 
you must take care that you are intuiting it fully from all possible angles, physically, mentally, and leaving nothing out of the analysis that belongs in there. Herbert Spiegelberg said, quote, The genuine will to know calls for the spirit of generosity rather than for that of economy. Close quote. Included in this generosity is a respect for both public and private events, the objective and the subjective. A basic point in phenomenology is called intentionality, which refers to the mutuality of the subject and the object in experience. All phenomena involve both an intending act and an intended object. Traditionally, we have emphasized the value of the object pole and denigrated that of the subject pole. In fact, we've gone so far as to dismiss the object pole as if it doesn't even correspond to some physical entity. But, to quote Spiegelberg again, quote, even merely private phenomena are facts which we have no business to ignore. A science which refuses to take account of them, as such, is guilty of suppressing evidence and will end with a truncated universe. Close quote. On the other hand, we must also be on guard against including things in our descriptions that don't belong there. This is the function of bracketing. We must put aside all biases that we may have about the phenomenon. When you have a prejudice against a person, you will see what you expect rather than what is there. The same applies to phenomena in general. You must approach them without theories, hypotheses, metaphysical assumptions, religious beliefs, or even common sense conceptions. Ultimately, bracketing means suspending judgment about the true nature or the ultimate reality of the experience, even whether or not the experience exists. Although the description of individual phenomena is interesting in its own right, and when it involves people or cultures, is a massive undertaking as well, we usually come to a point where we want to say something about the class of which the phenomenon is a part. In phenomenology, we talk about seeking the essence or structure of something, so we might investigate the essence of triangularity, or of pizza, or of anger, or of being male or female. We might even, as the phenomenological existentialists have attempted, seek the essence of being human. Husserl suggested a method called free imaginative variation. When you feel you have a description of the essential characteristics of a category of phenomenon, ask yourself, what can I change or leave out without losing the phenomenon? If I color the triangle blue or construct it out of Brazilian rosewood, do I still have a triangle? If I leave out an angle or curve the sides, do I still have a triangle? This may seem trivial and easy, but now try it regarding the phenomenon of being human. Is a corpse human? Is a disembodied spirit human? Is a person in a permanent vegetative coma? Or how about a porpoise with intelligence and personality? 
or a just fertilized egg or a six-month-old fetus. With phenomenology, the world regains some of its solidity. The mind is again permitted a reality of its own, and a rather paranoid skepticism is replaced with a more generous and ultimately more satisfying curiosity. By returning, as Husserl put it, to the things themselves, or to use another of his terms, to the lived world, the Lebenswelt, we stand a better chance at developing a true understanding of our human existence. Heidegger. Martin Heidegger was born on September 26, 1889, in Meskirch, Germany. His father was the sexton of the local church, and Heidegger followed suit by joining the Jesuits. He studied theology and philosophy of the Middle Ages, as well as the more recent work of Franz Bretano. Heidegger studied with Heinrich Reichert, a well-known Kantian, and with Husserl. He received his doctorate in 1914 and began teaching at the University of Freiburg the following year. Although he was strongly influenced by Husserl's phenomenology, Heidegger's interests lay more in the meaning of existence itself. In 1923, Martin Heidegger became a professor at the University of Marburg, and in 1927, he published his master work, Being and Time. Sein und Zeit. Heidegger's ideas were influenced by the ancient Greeks, as well as Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, as well as Husserl. Being and time was an exploration of the verb to be, particularly from the standpoint of a human being in time. Densely and obscurely written, being in time was nevertheless well-received all over Europe, though not in the English-speaking world. In 1928, Martin Heidegger returned to Freiburg as Husserl's successor. In the 1930s, the Nazis began pressuring German universities to fire their Jewish professors. The rector at Freiburg resigned in protest, and Heidegger was elected to take his place. Although Heidegger strongly encouraged his students and professors to be true to their search for truth, he nevertheless also encouraged loyalty to Hitler. He even joined the Nazi party. Many people who might otherwise be admirers of his thinking have never forgiven him for that. But to be fair, he did resign from his position as rector in 1934, and after the war, he talked about Nazism as a symptom of the sickness of modern society. Heidegger stopped teaching in 1944, and after the war, the Allied forces prevented him from further teaching. But they later restored his right to teach in light of the fact that his support of Hitler was of a passive rather than of an active nature. Heidegger died in Meskirk in, on May 26, 1976. Heidegger spent his entire life asking one philosophical question. What is it to be? Behind all of our day-to-day -day living, behind all of our philosophical and scientific investigations of life, how is it that we are at all? Phenomenology, 
reveals the way in which we are. The first hurdle is the traditional contrast between subject and object, which splits human beings as a knower from the environments which are the known. But in the phenomenological attitude, experience doesn't show that split. Knower and known, person and environment, are inextricably bound together. Instead, it appears that the subject-object split is something that we developed late in history, especially with the advent of modern science. The problems of the modern world come from the falling of Western thought. Instead of a concern with the development of ourselves as human beings, we have allowed technology and technique to rule our lives and lead us into a false way of being. This alienation from our true nature is called inauthenticity. Now, much of what is difficult about reading Heidegger is that he tries to recover the kind of being that was before the subject-object split. And he does this by looking at the origins of words, especially Greek words. Inasmuch as the ancient Greeks were less alienated from themselves and their world, their language should offer us a clue as to the relationship to being. Heidegger says that we have a special relationship to the world, which he refers to by calling human existence Dasein. Dasein means being there, and it emphasizes that we are totally immersed in the world, and yet we stand out, we exist as well. We are a little off-center, you might say, never quite stable, always becoming. A big part of our peculiar nature is that we have freedom. We create ourselves by choosing. We are our own projects. But this freedom, however, is painful. And we experience life being filled with anxiety, also called angst or dread. Our potential for freedom calls us to authentic being by means of anxiety. One of the central sources of anxiety is the recognition that we all have to die. Our limited time here on earth makes our choices far more meaningful, and the need to choose to be authentic far more urgent. We are, Heidegger says, being towards death. All too often, we surrender in the face of anxiety and death, a condition that Heidegger calls fallenness. We become das Mann, the everybody, nobody in particular, the anonymous man, one of the crowd, one of the mob. Two characteristics of das Mann are idle talk and curiosity. Idle talk is small talk, chatter, gossip, shallow interaction, as opposed to true openness with each other. Curiosity refers to our need for distraction, for novelty-seeking, busybodiness, concern with what other people are doing even though those other people and their behavior does not affect us. And this is opposed to the true capacity for wonder. 
We as human beings become authentic by thinking about being, by facing anxiety and death head on. And here, Heidegger says, lies joy. Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre is probably the best known of the existentialist and clearly straddles the line between the philosopher and the psychologist and the social activist as well. Jean-Paul Sartre was born June 21, 1905 in Paris, France, and was the only child of Jean-Baptiste Sartre and his wife, Anne-Marie. His father died one year later of colitis, so his mother took him to live with her grandfather, Karl Schweitzer, a German professor at the Sorbonne, and the uncle of the famous missionary philosopher, Albert Schweitzer. Rather lost in the disciplined household of her grandfather, Anne-Marie and her small but highly intelligent son grew very close. A childhood illness left Sartre blind in one eye, which drifted outward and up, so he forever seemed to be looking elsewhere. As a lonely young boy, he began to write stories and plays as an escape. Anne-Marie escaped her grandfather's house by getting remarried when Jean-Paul was 12. Jean-Paul became rebellious and unmanageable, and so he was sent to a boarding school. There, he continued his troublemaking ways and frequently spent time in detention. After high school, Sartre attended the École Normale Supérieure at Sorbonne. Brilliant but disorganized and attentive, Sartre placed last out of 50 students on his exit exams. The following year, he studied with a young woman named Simone de Beauvoir and graduated in 1929. He placed first this time, and she second. They would have a strong but open love relationship until their deaths. After graduation, Sartre taught in a series of schools for many years. He spent one year in Berlin attending lectures by Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology. This approach would figure prominently in several of his philosophical works, including Imagination in 1936, Sketch for a Theory of Emotions in 1939, and The Psychology of Imagination in 1940. In 1938, Sartre published his first novel, Nausea. In this novel, he writes about the feelings of nausea that his character feels when he contemplates the thickness of the material world, including other people and his own body. The novel is strange, but the descriptions are compelling, and Sartre began to make a name for himself. In 1939, Sartre was drafted into the army. He was taken prisoner in 1940 and released a year later. His experiences as a participant of the resistance would color many of his later works. In June 1943, his play The Flies opened in Paris. Even though it was blatantly anti-Nazi, the play was sometimes attended by Nazi officers. Also in 1943, Jean-Paul Sartre published his masterpiece, Being and Nothingness. In this large and difficult work, 
Sartre outlined his theory that human consciousness was sort of a nothingness, or a no-thingness, surrounded by the thickness of being. As a nothingness, human consciousness is free from determinism, resulting in the difficult situation of our being ultimately responsible for our own lives. Man is condemned to be free, Sartre wrote. On the other hand, without an essence to provide direction, human consciousness is ultimately meaningless. Sartre also wrote, quote, All existing things are born for no reason. Continue through weakness and die by accident. It is meaningless that we are born and it is meaningless that we die. End quote. Perhaps his best known philosophical point is existence precedes essence. In the case of non human entities, an essence is something that is prior to something's actual existence. So, for instance, a table's essence is the intention that its creator or builder or user has for it, such as its general shape, components, and function. A woodchuck's essence is its genetic inheritance, its instincts, and the conditions of its environment. And its entire life is sort of the playing out of this program. But a human being, according to Sartre, doesn't have a true essence. Oh, sure, we, we have our general shape, our genetics, our upbringings, and the like. But they do not determine our lives. They only set the stage. It is we ourselves who shape our lives. We are the ones who choose what to do with the raw materials that nature has provided us. We create ourselves. And our essence is only clear when our life is done. Another way to put this is that our essence is our lack of essence. Our human essence is our freedom. In 1944, Sartre produced one of his most famous plays, No Exit. This play, and several others, present the problem of living with one's fellow man and are quite pessimistic. The most famous quote from the play No Exit concerns hell, in which Sartre wrote, Hell is other people. After World War II, Sartre became increasingly concerned with the issue of social responsibility. He postulated that being free meant not only being responsible for your own life, but being responsible for the lives of all human beings. He outlined this idea in Existentialism and Humanism in 1946, and a novel called Paths of Liberty in 1945, a book that was never completed. Here's a quote. But if existence really does precede essence, man is responsible for what he is. Thus, existentialism's first move is to make every man aware of what he is and to make the full responsibility of his existence rest upon him. And when we say that a man is responsible for himself, we do not only mean that he is responsible for his own individuality, but that he is responsible for all men. End quote. 
Sartre was an admirer of Karl Marx's writings and of the Soviet Union. His support of Russian communism ended in 1956 when the Russian army marched into Budapest to stop the Hungarian efforts at independence. Still hopeful, however, he wrote a critical analysis of Marxism in 1960, supporting the fundamental ideas of Marx, but criticizing the form that Russian Marxism had taken. In 1963, Jean-Paul Sartre published his autobiography, Words. He was awarded the Nobel Prize the following year, but he refused it on political grounds. Here is an example of his evocative style. Quote, I am a dog. I yawn. The tears roll down my cheeks. I feel them. I am a tree. The wind gets caught in my branches and shakes them vaguely. I am a fly. I climb up a window pane. I fall. I start climbing again. Now and then, I feel the caress of time as it goes by. At other times, most often, I feel it standing still. Trembling minutes drop down, engulf me, and are a long time dying. Wallowing, but still alive, they're swept away. They are replaced by others, which are fresher, but equally futile. This disgust is called happiness. End quote. Toward the end of the 1970s, Sartre's health began to deteriorate. His bad habits included smoking two packs of unfiltered French cigarettes a day, heavy drinking, and the use of amphetamines to help him stay awake while writing. He died on April 15, 1980, of lung cancer. Simone de Beauvoir tried to stay with his body and had to be taken away by attendants. His funeral procession was attended by over 50,000 mourners. The philosophy of existentialism as difficult as it is to express and to live, had a great impact on any number of thinkers in this country. Among them are philosophers, psychologists, and even the postmodernist movements. Less directly, existentialism has influenced American psychologists, such as Carl Rogers, and that influence continues to this day. <laughs> 